0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and how people define happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott. I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to Alex Pang. He's the author of a couple of books, one called Rest and one called Shorter and we're going to be talking a lot about the four-day week which feels like it's one of those ideas that has gone from fringe to a bit more mainstream particularly in recent times, people talking about the sort of post-COVID economy and ways to rebuild and all this kind of stuff. And I'm kind of seeing a lot more uh, coverage and credible coverage around the four-day week. It kind of feels like it's um, it's growing as an idea. And um, as you may or may not know, uh, my company Think Productive, we've been doing a a four-day week for about eight years. So we talk about that a little bit in the episodes, and I think Alex is pretty... uh, Uh, surprised that he hadn't heard (laughs) that we were doing that. And, um, you know, not deliberately, but we'd been kind of keeping a bit of a low profile with um, our four-day week stuff. Just we didn't really think it was that remarkable, so we weren't really telling the story. And weirdly, we'd um, told a couple of PR agencies and much more marketing-savvy companies about it. They'd started doing four-day week and then started going, hey, we're doing a four-day week and getting loads of coverage about it. So we would talk a lot about that in this episode and how that idea might grow. And we recorded this before the lockdown. So um, I thought that might be quite a nice thing for this week. Because we start the episode talking about the West End shows that Alex is going to see while he's over here from the States. So uh, that's how we start the episode. And it kind of feels like a different world um, listening back to it now. But um, I hope you'll find that you know, entertaining and kind of interesting and, and kind of a little bit of escapism maybe uh, as well. So um, yeah, we're going to get straight into the episode in a second with Alex. The other thing I just want to say at the beginning is I have recently launched my new mailing list. It's called Rev Up for the Week. So every Sunday I'm releasing uh, an email, which is just a little short blog post, short piece of writing with just a positive idea for the week, which feels very timely right now. Um, So just positivity on a Sunday, getting you ready for the week. So if you want to sign up for that, just go to grahamalcott.com and you'll see the little box on the homepage. And in fact, at the bottom of every other page as well. So uh, just fill in your box there. If you don't see an email back, go to your spam. It's probably there. It happens and uh, sign up for that. It's building really nicely actually. And um, I'm loving the sort of discipline of putting something constructive and positive out there at least once a week. So it's nice to just have a rhythm around that sort of creativity for me. Uh and the discipline of that is good. And also just the interaction of it's been really good. So just getting emails back from people saying hey, really love this bit, what about that? I disagree with that. Just kind of little things like that have been um uh really interesting for me uh just to sort of get out of my little solitude bubble and uh, connect often with a lot of people that I haven't connected with for a long time as well so that's been really good so let's get straight into the episode so i'm in london with alex pang we're going to talk about the 4 day week um alex's book shorter it's uh, just come out so um let's get into it here we are talking west end plays and uh, what alex is going to do in london so i'm here with alex sujung kim pang how are you doing?
1: I'm um, great. No, it's good to, good to be with you.
0: So you've come uh, from Silicon Valley last week?
1: Last week. So um, you have know, been over here doing press for the for the new book, and um, we'll also sneak in a couple shows oh, while, yeah. you know, oh. while, while we're in London. <clears throat> what um, are you going to go and see? We're going to go see Phantom, because okay. I've never seen it. Mm. And this is now, I think, the only city in the world where one could see three consecutive, three different Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals on three different nights. So, <laughs> you know, why not, t- you know, win in Rome. I think um, that's
0: always the case with London, though, probably, right? Like, he's so prolific, yeah. yeah.
1: And then um, my uh, a friend of my wife's actually has a play at The Globe oh, cool. on Wednesday. So we're going to go see that. And I know nothing about it, but I will enjoy it, Nice, I'm sure. And then we're going to go up to Oxford for a couple of days and then back home to do U.S. promotion for the American edition of Shorter.
0: Nice. So, you know, yeah, trying to keep busy. And um, obviously, this is a podcast which touches a lot on work-life balance. Sounds mm-hmm. like you have things in pretty good shape uh, yeah. in that regard.
1: Well, um, I feel like it. I mean, you yeah. know, this is, a, this is a busier week than normal. But um, I find, yeah. You know, one of the one of the real revelations for me over writing the last couple books and this is my third trade press book that's coming out is that when i first started writing this way after you know having a earlier career as an academic i didn't really think of the book promotion as kind of an extension of the work of being an author mm. you know it was just this kind of ornerous thing that you had to do, you know, for the man. Yeah. Um, But it actually turns out that, especially if you get people who, you know, have read the book, um, you know, work in a similar area, and, you know, you can actually have conversations that don't just require you to, like, rehash the book, but actually get you thinking about new subjects, or how how what you've written maybe applies in areas you haven't really thought about. And in fact... Shorter itself grew out of conversations that I had while promoting rest. And so you know, I think that that as a result, you know, for me, it is valuable to treat these things as kind of a serious intellectual enterprise. And that means that while I'm doing this, it's also important to kind of build in some downtime. Yeah. You know, yeah. because you need time for ideas to settle, to process things, to reflect. Kind of, if you're, in, if you're doing a kind of work where you're just doing the same thing over and over again, and you don't really have to kind of learn from your experience, maybe you don't need that sort of opportunity for reflection, but when you are, when you're doing stuff where you actually can learn some new things about what you're doing. Yeah, You don't want to lose those moments and those opportunities. And if there's one really significant thing I've learned from uh, writing, from writing Rest, it was that you really got to be conscious about building in those times, especially in today's working world. And so, you know, for me here, what that means is having a ton of stuff during the day but also making sure that I've got you know time in the evenings to do stuff like go out on long walks, yeah, right, for sure. you know, yeah. sort of sit someplace, write about the day, think stuff through, and you know make sure that that stuff is is you know captured and has time to kind of settle into a form that I can build on. For sure,
0: and it's like I, I mean you've talked about this in in both the books we just talked about there, rest and both and both in rest and shorter, but this idea that. Uh, if you're working with ideas and problem solving and creativity, mm-hmm. that actually the work continues even when you stop working right so that downtime is actually often where people get their best ideas from, or where you suddenly have this eureka moment or something pops into your head because mm-hmm. the brain just you know keeps on working away at those ideas or those problems or whatever right like, as you develop right so like that feels to me like a really um important thing, so we talked about um rest there which essentially is a, a book about how if you uh, work uh, less, then you get more done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then shorter, you're focusing much more on uh, individual uh, case studies of companies and, 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 and sort of different ways that people have taken the idea of work less and then get more done mm-hmm. and created for the founders and for the people in that business better work-life balance, more sustainable cultures and everything else yeah so so i think so i mean this is obvious to me because my company has been doing a a (laughs) four-day week for a long time Mm -hmm. Um, but should we just start at the beginning so it feels to me like a very strange counterintuitive idea uh it certainly is when i try and explain it to other people that you can get more done in four days than you would in five Mm -hmm. and and so on and so forth (laughs) So, um, should we just start with what you see as the main benefits of a four-day working week or a, or a shorter working
1: week? Sure. So, I have looked at companies around the world. Here in the UK, Scandinavia, the US, um, Australia, New Zealand. Interestingly, Japan and Korea have a lot of them, mm. and these are, you know, two countries whose languages have their own words for working yourself to death. Yeah, right. So, it is what i'm seeing is that it's a global movement it's also one that it you know, ranges across creative industries you know, professional service firms financial advisories but also nursing homes mm. factories um restaurants, restaurants yeah. which of yeah. course you know talk about talk about an industry where overwork is the norm yeah.
0: my girlfriend's a chef by the way okay and then um, i was talking to her about when we'd set this up, mm-hmm. I said, Hey, you know, I'm going to have this podcast four day week. And her instant reaction was this would never work in my industry. And I opened the book to read it. And the first case study is a restaurant <laughs> in Edinburgh. You know? right. um, so it, like, yeah, it is one of those things that again, you start to think about this could be possible in certain industries, but not others. But yeah. what you're finding is very different. It that.
1: is, you know, it is, it requires work to figure out how to make it work in every industry. And the solutions are, of course, different depending mm. upon, you know, or the kind of work you do and the expectations of your clients and the particular, you know, the particular economics of your industry. But, uh, the, uh, however, um, fundamentally, I think there are a couple places that these companies start from. You know, first off, they are all Run by by founders or CEOs who've had their own experiences with overwork, you know, with burnout or a health crisis that signals that they need to make a change, or you know, two years from now they're not going to be they're not going to be in this job. And if you're you know if you're the CEO of a startup or you're you know, the chef owner of a restaurant, you, know, you need. You know, you need to fix this if the company is going to survive. Yeah. Stay open. Um, For all of them also, recruitment and retention is also a big thing, right? You know, sort of, there's a war for talent in the software industry. You know, in restaurants, there is huge turnover and, you know, challenges keeping talented people in the industry in the face of incredibly long hours in a high-pressure environment. And so... That's another thing that uh, that companies are trying to solve for, and then you know things like better work-life balance, opportunities for professional development or creative renewal. Being able to do a job well is important, but there's no industry in which having new ideas is an insignificant thing, right? I think you know, we we often don't think of stuff you know places like nursing homes, let's say. As kind of they're not creative industries, sort of in the you know, in the same way that it, you know, a design firm is, but that work does require an ability to solve problems every single day. Yeah. You know, and so even if you are at work, you know, if if you're a if you're a nurse's aide, you need to be able to access some of the opportunities for rest and renewal that you know, a composer or a chef needs. Mm. And then, um, you know, so, you know, that's uh, that's kind of why companies do it. And then what I'm seeing in at least the office context is everyone doing a few basic things, right? All, you know, they all shorten meetings dramatically, Meetings, you know, meetings default to an hour long because sometime in the 1980s, an anonymous programmer in Redmond, Washington decided that in calendaring programs, the default was an hour. Yeah. Nobody hit, and, you know, the rest of the world just seemed to accept that this was how long meetings should be.
0: Um, I went with loads of people, by the way, who who don't know that you can. You can actually just type over that and just say it's going to be forty-six right. minutes. They think that they have to work in a fifteen-minute or a thirty-minute or a, yeah. you know, a long yeah. like chunk of time.
1: But right? it turns out that if you've got say a calendaring program and another program for reserving offices, mm. that often it's difficult to change the defaults in one and have them carry over into the other. Yeah. Yeah. So there were there. It turns out there are all, there are these like weird technical things that uh, that can get in the way of 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 changing meeting lengths and kind of making it stick across an organization. But, you know, fundamentally, I think that, um, you know, most of these places shorten, you know, they will get rid of, you know, the weekly, the weekly update meeting Mm. or, uh, you know, other standing meetings or make them dramatically shorter. Um, They will impose meeting discipline, thinking more about who needs to be in the room you know, circulating agendas beforehand having particular thing you know action items for that time and being really kind of ruthless about actually creating value in that time that's an early win because nobody really loves meetings um, everybody knows that you could do them better and so act, you know so solving this problem that is almost universal is is a way of building a degree of confidence that yes, you can actually make substantive changes in the way, you know, in the way people work. Um, it obviously clears up more time in, in everyone's schedule and it raises the question. If you are able to change this basic thing that people have dealt with for years, you know, what else can you change?
0: Yeah. You know, it yeah. sort of
1: opens up a space for rethinking other parts of the day.
0: And then, it is almost like a sort of um, i'm going i'm going to swear cuz <laughs> that's fine <laughs> cuz it's my podcast it's pocket. your podcast yeah, so warning um, but it's a bit of a head fuck right mm-hmm. it's a bit of a mind fuck in the sense that people are so used to this 5 day 9 to 5 rhythm mm-hmm. that like throwing people off that rhythm i think we're just creatures of habit aren't we and it's it's yeah. really difficult so yeah it opens up that innovation around around doing other things right. too yeah
1: so you know that's a that's an important early thing And then, Mm. you know, the couple other things that everyone does is you look for um, ways to uh, reduce technology-driven distractions or other kinds of distractions. So, you know, that means things like having particular times of day when you check your email and having permission, importantly, to ignore it the rest of the day. Yeah um getting slack under control if you're in an office where people generally have 12 tabs open and then the other big thing is kind of redesigning the daily schedule so that there are particular blocks of time often in the morning where people have permission to be a little antisocial mm-hmm. you know to work on their hardest their hardest problems without any inter- any interruptions because And this works because very often, you know, a couple hours of focused, concentrated work, you can get more done than in a distracted eight-hour day.
0: Absolutely. You know, in my book, I call that proactive attention. And then um, Cal Newport called it deep work, which is just way better. So, well done, Cal.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, but uh, but implementing that for everybody, as opposed to making it something that you've got to kind of carve out of your day, is, I think, a really valuable thing. And making it a social norm, Mm. making it something that everybody can do, is also a really, really useful discipline. Because, you know, among other things, it just reduces the worry that you might have that you're seen as, you know, not a good team player. Mm. Um, It also makes clearer to, you know, it kind of turns attention into a social resource, and in fact, you know, there's this important kind of social dimension to attention and focus, right? Your ability to concentrate depends on my willingness to not interrupt you, you know, to respect the fact that um, you've got stuff you need to get done just as I do, and that if we all cooperate, On that, then we can get out of here at the end of the day Thursday and be done for the week. So, you know, just those three things dealing with meetings, dealing with tech distractions, redesigning the day is enough in most places to allow it's the, uh, it goes a long way to letting you do five days' work in four, you know, and then you get into various particular things that companies do depending upon what industry they're in and what opportunities there are for automating some kinds of routine work and augmenting your ability to do you know higher value added work and sometimes simply eliminating some jobs that are kind of legacy and traditional but which are no longer really valuable either to you or to your clients.
0: Yeah, I guess like the universal truths, people always think that you know i'm overworked i've got loads to do i need the number of hours that i've got in the day that's like a really universal reaction to this stuff mm-hmm. but also what's I, th- I think pretty universally true is that if people are really honest with themselves there are always a few hours in the week you know we all do it there's hours where we're not using those hours as optimally as we could do mm-hmm. and one of my experiences with you know, being around the idea of the four-day week or five-hour working days and some of those experiments and stuff is that, you know, actually, uh, if you know you've only got five hours, you treat that five hours so preciously compared to seven or eight hours, right? right. Because it's like, this is such a pr- precious resource and people are much more headstand and focused because they know they're leaving in the middle of the afternoon and going to have, mm-hmm. have a nice time later on, right? So like, it kind of sh- shifts that dynamic. And I think for me, you know, everybody really uh, craves when, when I go and do workshops and talks to people, everyone's really craving more thinking space mm-hmm. and, and sort of time to actually get the, you know, the real big priority work done and not be in that reactive mode. Right. right. So like, are you, so presumably you're seeing that this is something that actually creates a different culture in organizations as well as just being a short number of hours.
1: Absolutely. You know, um, I've had leaders say, you know, And, you know, these are people who did their share of, you know, 12-hour days or, you know, sleeping under their desks right before, you know, big projects. Yeah. That, you know, anybody can sit in a chair for 12 hours, right? Um, Anybody can get a task done with enough time. What really impresses me now is the person who can plan out the work and get it done in six hours rather than 12. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you that by... Tr- you know, one of the things that the shorter day does is get organizations and teams to look at their processes, to think about where the inefficiencies are, you know, what stuff can be automated, and that in turn changes the way that they think about and value time. Right? If you know, if they set an organizational goal of being able to you know, do all the work in six hours rather than 10 or four days rather than, you know, five or six, then time becomes a more valuable resource. And you think about, you you know, you take more seriously the challenge of how you can be more effective and more efficient rather than assuming that, you know, the process is what it is and people will just stay late and, you know, kind of make up for inefficiencies in the system or, Problems with the schedule and so on. It tends to get people to think more about systemic and organizational solutions to those problems because they value their time. To- because they value their time. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I want to come back to that idea and the flip side of that, which is organizations that charge their services out by the hour. Mm-hmm. So let's park that for a second. Sure. But just let's finish off on the, the benefits part of it. One of the things that I really liked was. Uh, I can't remember who it was in the book, but someone in the book said there's fewer. Sp- i have never heard this phrase before. Fewer spin up and spin down mm-hmm. times. It's so this idea that you know you you travel to work, you get there, you have coffee, you socialize a little bit, you know you check in, you boot the laptop up, all that sort of stuff has to happen. Right. So just having fewer of those times in the week mm-hmm. just means that on a sort of percentage basis, just you know by the by just the way that works, you get more of your time is going to be in a more productive mode, right? So, like, mm-hmm. that kind of feels like a good, uh, almost like a, a sort of offshoot benefit or a, a sort of additional benefit, right? Yeah, now.
1: you know, and I think, you you know, you, you, can, you can see this most dramatically in, like, factory work, right? It takes a certain amount of time to warm up machines and they need time to cool down mm, at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. But there is, you know, there is a similar kind of thing with, you know, with people as well. And it is easy to discount the amount of time that we spend commuting doing all the stuff that we need to do to kind of set up set up for the day but that is a non-trivial amount of time mm, each day yeah. and over the course of a year that actually does add up to something
0: compound that by 200 employees exactly <laughs> yeah yeah all yeah. of a sudden
1: you're talking about some real time yeah absolutely so one of the one of the benefits is the time you know the time savings, um, shorter commuting times you know less energy and money spent mm. you know just getting to and from work um, there is you have plenty of people who are you know parents of young children talk about there being you know, uh, substantial money savings when you're when you've got a kid in childcare 4 days rather than 5 yeah. um and then places that survey this you know do it using office vibe or net promoter score or other kinds of measures find that people report being happier both at work and out of work, you know, and and at home. They talk about having better work-life balance. And these things are pretty, these, these are, these are things that you would expect when you go to four days, but people also are healthier because you've got more time to cook decent food to exercise. And interestingly, to get back to the question of time pressure, um, there was a place, uh, uh, a medical documentation company called Synergy Vision in London that did surveys of people right before starting a four-day week and six months after. And one of the numbers that went up was the number of people who said that they felt they had enough time in the day to get their work done. <laughs> that went from about 50% right. to almost 80%. Wow. Even when going from five days yeah. to four, you know, by eliminating all of those inefficiencies, mm. cutting the meetings and all that other stuff, created, even though absolutely, you know, everyone knew there were fewer hours in the week to, uh, or to, to work, the subjective sense was that they now had more time to actually get the work done, Yeah, which is, I mean, it's both pretty remarkable, but I think a lot of us have had experiences working in offices where if you kind of reflect for 10 seconds on your own experience, you think, yeah, I can see how that would be, Mm, you know, how that would be true.
0: Yeah. I mean, the other other benefit I really liked, um, you talked about this company called Taipei Media. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I found this with Think Productive with my company as well, that what happens is you've got, as a small company, the pressure of trying to compete with, you know, much bigger organizations on wages, you just can't do it. Right. <clears throat> so if you're in a place where people are looking for something different and you're able to offer that, then mm-hmm. you can actually be, you know, hyper competitive um, in terms of culture and satisfaction and everything else. Mm-hmm. And people are willing to, you know, to take that little pay cut to to come to organization that, that will, you know, really serve their interests. And I love the uh, person from Taipei Media who said... Their ideal hire is someone who has an expense account, but they're treated like shit. Yeah. And yeah. so it's like, you know, like those people are willing to move from those kind of organizations in order to kind of have that kind of better work life balance and right. kind of better lifestyle. No,
1: Ross Ross is uh who's who's the the founder of Type A Media was a, a very was very colorful on all of these <laughs> issues. But you know, it is the case that you know for small companies. Hiring and retention is an, is like an existential thing, right? You can't yeah. lose a key developer yeah. at a bad moment, and you, you know, and and one one bad hire in a company of ten people can be really toxic. And what these, you know, what all of these companies report is that when you can offer a four day week, yeah, you're not offering such gigantic salaries, but you, but it attracts the attention. Often of people who are a little more senior, you know, people who have, you know, sort of done their share of late nights. Maybe they've got young kids. Um, they're far enough in their profession to think that you know the long hours were cool when I was younger, but it's kind of stupid to keep working this way. Mm, yeah, and they can see how you could make work better, and they value their time a lot more. And so for them, the proposition of, you know, of not just having more time for their families and themselves, but having the interesting challenge of figuring out how I can redesign my work, you know, is something that can be really, really appealing. Mm. Um, And I think especially for... uh, I hear this a little bit more with companies that are, let's say, outside London or, you know, not in Sydney or Melbourne, but in, you know, Hobart, Tasmania. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, yeah, they're they are able, they're able to attract people who otherwise might not be that interested in relocating, or in some cases, you've got kind of talent that has already started, you know, moving moving in this direction anyway. Um, you know, looking for better work-life balance, but they've got a two-hour commute now, and if they can cut that down to ten minutes and work four days a week, then that you know that's fantastic. I mean, that's dramatic, isn't it? If you think
0: you know, two hours commute each way, you know, take a day off. That's what well. like it's it, that's a dramatic change in lifestyle. It, yeah. it is.
1: And you know, the we often we often commute at the times of day when our minds are at their best. Mm. You know, yeah. we're there are lots of us who, in you know, like between eight and twelve, are at our cognitive peaks, and you know, we're spending a good chunk of that, you know, that cognitive energy dealing with traffic,
0: yeah, um, yeah.
1: which is or reading
0: really bad newspapers if you live in London, yeah, yeah, you know,
1: and it's a it's a it's a real loss, yeah, and so being able to uh, to you know to take that really high quality time. And to actually devote it to work mm. is, I think, a double win.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about some of the resistance to this whole idea. Then, mm-hmm. so uh, I'd love to hear what you know about the Welcome Trust, and mm-hmm. they're probably the biggest, most high-profile organization in the UK that had have flirted with this idea and then decided against it. Right. Um, but uh, maybe, in I mean, maybe this is maybe this is uh, a time to talk about the Welcome Trust, or maybe there's a, a bigger points we made first but it feels to me like there's often a lot of skepticism and you talk in the book about a couple of examples where the boss has said to you know the owner of the company or whatever has said to the team hey we're going to move this four-day week and Mm -hmm. it is is expecting a fanfare of joy and celebration and champagne and actually everyone's going what no way we couldn't do this and there's this kind of skepticism and cynicism that builds very quickly so Mm um so Let's start with why do you think that's the case? Why, why do you think people are so reluctant to uh, to engage in that sort of head fuck change mm-hmm. thing?
1: I think that there's, you know, um, partly because people are exposed to enough change initiatives that don't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, partly people who want to do a good job look at a dramatic change like that. You know, and the, and the first question is, how am I going to get all my work done in yeah, time? Right? Man. I don't feel like I have enough time in five days to do this. Yeah. And now, you know, now we're going to say four. Um, the other question, you know, the other big question is, what happens to salaries? Mm, yeah. Right? Does this mean you're going to cut my salary twenty percent and expect me to do the same work? Now, the answer to that last one is no. Um, stout salaries in these companies stay the same, and there's you know, and uh, so in a sense effectively people kind of get a raise yeah um yeah. you also you know indirectly through lower commuting costs childcare that's a bit more of a bump but i think that the you know that the best version of the skepticism is people who want to do a good job mm-hmm. and want the time to do a good yeah. job want to make sure that this isn't going to make that difficult um, so that's, I think the first place that it comes from. And then, you know, they're just the ordinary logistical questions of how, you know, how in the world do you make this work? Mm. Especially in an era where our solution to the problem of having too much to do is to work longer. Proposing that you go in a different direction requires some explanation.
0: Yeah. So
1: yeah. I, that's why you know that's that's where that's where the internal the internal resistance comes from, you know resistance externally has different sources, but in important ways, interestingly, is less of an obstacle than most places expect, mm. and I think that's a that was one of the most surprising things I found when researching the book. Yeah. So because the question of how are clients going to react is always a big thing. And the worry, of course, is that clients are gonna hate this, you know, they're gonna you know, the uh, they're gonna desert you, you're gonna go out of business. And I have heard one story of one prospective client who said, No, I need your people to sleep with their phones under, mm, you know, under their pillows. Uh, yeah, uh. Um I haven't heard any stories of clients, of existing clients, ending their contracts. Actually
0: leaving, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: And in fact, they've been quite supportive.
0: And but what happens if, you know, in agencies where you're charging people out mm-hmm. by the day, right? And you've got a yeah. certain level of retainer. So what happens there? Because then you're presumably, if you're the founder of that agency, going to your clients and mm-hmm. you're saying... Hey, you know we're taking this much as a retainer every month. Well, that used to get you five days. Now it gets you four. Mm-hmm. But trust us, it'll be more productive. And that's quite a difficult
1: sell, right? Yeah. So if you are, if your current model is essentially to charge by the hour mm. or the day, um, you got to switch to a project-based billing model okay. instead. right? So the like accounting firms and financial service advisories that have done this have made that move first. Mm. Um, I do know of a couple small law firms that have done it explicitly as part of an effort to just do less work. And so they did not play around with their billing. They just reduce the number of clients that they were or that they took on.
0: So to do less work, as in, let's make this more sustainable and we'll make a bit less profit, but that's fine because exactly. we're in this for the long haul.
1: Right. Yeah. But I don't have notable examples of places where they said, effectively, our hourly rates are going to go up by 25%, but you're going to get the same quality of work out of us. Mm. I think psychologically, it's easier for clients to get their heads around the idea that uh, the project delivery dates are going to stay the same. You're paying the same amount of money for the same work, and mm-hmm. it's just you know internal housekeeping and whatever the company needs to do in order to get this stuff done is up to them. Yeah. When you're paying people by the hour, I think there is this sense yeah, that yeah. you have you know you have more command over their time, and so you are challenged, I think, to or to to figure out how you can make this work if you stick to an hourly billing model. Mm.
0: And what's just occurred to me as well, is it, you know, because there's like these agencies that end up putting cameras in their office so that client, you know, promising clients can check in on where right. their people are all the time because you're paying their wages and all this kind of, feels like this is the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to trust and autonomy to, let's say, the sort of Jeff Bezos, Amazon warehouse, (laughs) uh, you know, kind of Taylorism thing of everything's micromanaged and time is, you know, you have KPIs around how many books you can put on the, you know, in in boxes per three seconds and all that sort of thing, right? Right. Like, it's a very different, they're almost like two competing philosophies that are, you know, probably going to shape the next 20, 30 years.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, I think that... um... There are so there are things that companies will do in order to help reassure clients that they'll be accessible when need be. Mm. Um, you know, so and for example, there's one, you know, one firm has uh, has now started having project email addresses, and so a client can write to okay. that, you know, write to that address yeah. and guarantees that you know there's always someone who's watching that inbox and so even on you know Fridays or if there's an emergency on weekends there'll be someone who will respond and then another important thing that uh, that companies who are able to do this will do is automate some of the processes so that clients have easier access to kinds of reports that used to be generated by humans right so i'm thinking in particular of a cloud-based accounting firm called farnell clark up in norwich and you know traditional accounting is done you know was even today in some places you've still got like the ledger books and people writing stuff down and all that and doing like quarterly reports generating those things is a whole bunch of work that someone's got to go through With cloud-based accounting, you know you get your clients to you. There are various tools that they use for you know for submitting receipts and all that stuff. A lot of that work is automated, which also means that stuff like quarterly reports can can be set up to be generated automatically. Yeah, you know, or if a client has a question about. Uh, some set of expenses or, you know, can I do this thing? Can we invest in this? You can answer that much more quickly. What that also means for Farnell Clark is that they've been able to move from just doing like accounting and taxes to doing more financial advisory stuff, which is, of course, you know, which, of course, you can charge more for, but which also requires a higher level of understanding of your clients and a greater degree of trust on their part that, you know, you understand them and you have advice worth taking. Um, and then I think that there you know and then the you know other places will have individuals who are tasked with you know watching the company the company in box you know mm. or of on Fridays or on weekends just in case. But I think what a lot of them find is that there are fewer emergencies than you expect right i think the atti- you know the attitude that you always need to be responsive to clients comes from a good place yeah but it can contribute to uh, the sense that because There might be something happening, you always have to, you know, you've always got to, got to, got to watch the inbox. And that turns out not so much to really be the case in a lot of businesses. Certainly there are ones, you know, where there are genuine, you know, genuine surprises. Mm -hmm. But lots of places find that that's more manageable than they expect. And I think in some cases, interestingly, clients don't mind having a little extra time when, um, they don't have to respond to you. You know, clients themselves are, you know, are, are time stress themselves. And so in a sense, there is a little bit of a gift in not putting them in a position where they feel like they have to check in on you on Fridays or, you know, email in the evenings.
0: Yeah. It's the same reason. I love a bank holiday. I love working a bank holiday Monday, and mm -hmm. then I'll take the Thursday or the Friday off. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it's like, if you zig one, everyone else sags. Right. You just know that you don't have yeah. like a hundred people sort of coming back to you. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: so we've got a few minutes left. And I, yeah. I think what would be nice to talk about is there must be loads of people who are sat there listening to this going, this sounds like it could be the future. This sounds great. But I'm stuck in the middle of a big organization that is just never going to change or is going to be behind the curve or whatever. So what thoughts do you have around that? So people who they're working five days a week, but are there lessons that they can take from a four-day week or different kinds of work patterns even within a five-day structure? Yeah.
1: Well, I think, you know, first off that making this kind of change work in big organizations definitely is harder. Um, you know, the more number of moving parts you have, the more, the larger the number of people who have to say yes, mm. let's try this, yeah. or have, gets in the way of, you know, of, of those changes. But I think that even if you're in, of a bigger organization that um, first off, there is the chance in smaller units to experiment with this on your own, right? Um, SK tell, you know, SK, the Korean tribal uh, that does telecom stuff and they're a cell phone company and a bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. They've got a couple smaller units right now that are trialing four day weeks or, like nine days in two weeks, okay. kinds of things. With the idea that if that what they learn in these smaller units can eventually be rolled out elsewhere. And in fact, Ford Motor Company, you know, famously moved the assembly line to a five-day week in 1926. They'd spent three years getting to five days in all the rest of the company. Mm, so yeah. you know, they knew an awful lot about how to make this work yeah. when they finally put it on put it into the biggest, most important part of the company. So, I think that you know that structuring these more local experiments is one possibility. If you can, you know, if either you're a manager who can do this with your own reports, or if you have a manager who you can convince. Yeah. If you're not in either of those positions, I think there are still things you can learn ab- from these small companies about how to more effectively use your time. Um, about the kind of social nature of time and attention that can help you and your colleagues be more effective. And then at least, you know, if you can't sneak out the door on Thursday, um, you know, free up time for more professional development stuff, Mm -hmm. for example. And, you know, there are companies who operate on a model where they work four days and then the fifth day, the office is open so people can come in and kind of tinker around with programming languages or their own projects.
0: So it's well, like free Fridays, exactly, right? Exactly. So it's like, right. okay, so it's still open, come in and do professional development.
1: Right. You maybe, know, maybe, and this, is, yeah. this is popular, especially with like software companies. Yeah. Because for one thing, Google had 20% time, which was always something you had to negotiate it as an individual. It was never a company-wide thing, mm. but it was always seen as something incredibly valuable if you could negotiate it. Um, so, you know, if you're in, if you're in a profession that is changing and it's worth learning new things, you might be able to use the time that way. And then I think at the very, you know, at the very worst, there is satisfaction in being able to do things like, you know, your work more effectively and run meetings more efficiently. Um, that's good for building up local social capital, Mm. even if it doesn't immediately translate into Time you know into a shorter work week for everybody. Um, but you know, even since I turned in the manuscript a few months ago, I wrote about a hundred odd companies in, in shorter. I found another 50 that have started trials in the last several months, you know, including. The Japanese office of Microsoft, which is you know, mm. 24, you know, yeah. more than two thousand people right there, and so I think that the you know, places the size of Welcome are playing around with this, and what, what was it doing. Welcome. What, what, what do you know about uh, what happened there? Yeah, you know, I know what every I I know I know what everybody else who read the press about it, yeah. um, right, which is that the sense was that it wasn't clear how you can make it work across the entire okay. you know, entire unit of, you know, several hundred people. And I think that there was also some, you know, I, they couldn't sell it to the board, right? And for those two reasons, they decided to, to sort of park the idea. Mm. Um, I think if you went back now with more companies that have done it, you could make a stronger argument. Yeah, um, And, you know, fundamentally, I think for skeptical boards... You know the 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 argument is you know the companies who've done this are more productive, they're more profitable they've got better work-life balance and people have more time for talent development you know which one of these don't you like?
0: Yeah, I mean it's like if you could take a pill that gave you all those things you'd you'd take it whatever the consequence sure. right? yeah. <laughs> like,
1: um, you know and, and, and
0: also when well, you got like um you know Microsoft in Japan right. I mean, Microsoft, about the most corporate brands that a brand could be. Mm-hmm. Japan, about the most obsessed with, you know, overwork as a yes. culture that we could be. And if, you know, if they're embracing that and experimenting with that, then that tells you something, right? right?
1: Now, and they saw, you know, a 40% increase in productivity measured yeah. by, you know, essentially sales dollars per, like, hour of hour of work. Mm. But they saved a whole bunch of money on, you know, electricity costs. Yeah, And they... Printed a lot less because, you know, not just because they were working four days and so you took, you know, like all those numbers and you multiply by 0.8, right? It's also that the other stuff that they did in order to assure that people were able to get their work done meant not a 20% savings in, you know, paper, in, you know, in printing, but like a 40% savings. Yeah. So, and, you know, the story, and I see it over and over again, these kinds of stories of savings or productivity gains in excess of the 20% that you need in order to make this work. Yeah, um, you know, once you, once, once people start looking for ways to do their jobs better so that they can leave earlier, they tend to keep doing it.
0: Yeah, because then you're in that mindset of of sort of always looking for those improvement opportunities. Exactly, and then then good things happen.
1: Yeah, Um, yeah. One of the one of the people I I interviewed said that um, my employees now act like they own the company, and all I did was give them a day off.
0: You
1: know, you you know, you can't pay people enough to behave that way. Yeah, but you can. But you can. But you can incentivize it by giving them a day off.
0: Yeah. And we have a very similar mindset with Think Productive where the four-day week is part of that, but there's just a, a more general uh, sense of, you know, let's give people real ownership over the decisions mm-hmm. and let's be transparent with what we're trying to do. And, you know, and, and all of that leads, I think, to a place where people feel like, yeah, they're thinking on, on our behalf as a company rather than just like their behalf as an employee. Almost. Right.
1: Now, I think, you know, you uh, companies definitely need to have a tolerance for risk and a willingness to let people experiment and iterate. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you, know, if you can do that, then it, you do end up giving people a lot more ownership over their work, or you know, on the Marxist, the Marxist parlance control over their own means mm. of production.
0: And, I love how you start the book, by the way, with Karl Marx and Adam Smith yeah. on the same page. Yeah, uh, I mean, those, those are your two first quotes. Yeah, right? the,
1: the fact that the fact that both of them both of them <laughs> saw yeah. this as worthwhile yeah. uh, should should tell you, especially I think after the after the most recent election, where you know the four day week was part of the labor platform mm. and was you know, slammed as you know another example of you know, John McDonald's secret plan to destroy the economy.
0: Yeah,
1: it's really shouldn't be seen as a right-wing or a left-wing idea, but as a good piece of business strategy, as simply a good business idea.
0: Absolutely. And so just before we finish, I just want to talk about um, you and your relationship with all this. So with me productivity almost becomes like a rod for my own back right so every email i send everyone's looking for how productive my email is and like (laughs) you know if i'm three minutes late somewhere that's a problem and you know like productivity and productivity ninja becomes a rod for my own back so if you find yourself uh sort of trying to do a sneaky email on a friday for Mm -hmm. example like do do people call you out on that like is 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 working a four-day week now something that uh, you stick to it religiously? Are there times where that doesn't quite work? How, mm-hmm. how, how does that work with like your own personal
1: Right. Um I I actually still do the stuff that I talk about in um, in my last book, Rest. Yeah. So, you know, in there I talk about the incredible power of you know working a concentrated four or five hour day. Mm. And I tend to do four days like six five or six days a week. Partly because I have a lot of clients who are either in Asia or in so you do Europe.
0: four hours, five or six days a week.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, with time zone shifts and stuff, there's a certain amount of having to break up the day or you know do do some stuff Sunday evening, yeah, kind of yeah. thing. But um, you know, I find even with between writing and talking to people and consulting and stuff that for me that is that a schedule that is both effective and restorative, you know, and gives me time to both get done obvious work, but also, you know, enough time to think about non-obvious things that later become, you know, things I can talk to other people about.
0: And here's one of my weaknesses is that I have uh, sort of, you know, very set schedule around how I manage my attention along similar lines, but Mm -hmm. then it goes out the window when I travel As you're traveling now right Mm -hmm. so how do you try and keep those things in play when you're sort of you know at the behest of someone else's schedule and in a different country and all that
1: the first thing i do is when i'm traveling you know doing workshops talks etc i do as much of prep beforehand as I absolutely possibly can. Mm, yeah. I, used, I used to be one of those people who would write the talk on the plane, yeah. you know, and I thought, <laughs> you know, sort of, you've got 10 hours, that's plenty of time yeah, to
0: knock it out. I've definitely done that. You
1: know, yeah. and you can write a talk on the plane. Yeah. I find though, that it is much better to, you know, just, just as you should pack carefully um, so that you've got everything you need but not too much stuff mm. so too I find that work that thinking doing more planning on talks and workshops and so on so that there's less improvisation of that around that kind of stuff leaves more space for the kind of valuable reflection of what's happened you know what's happened on site what's happening in the moment and so essentially over plan, so that you can generate more ease while you're on the road yeah
0: um i mean that's just a brilliant productivity lesson in general Overplan so you can generate ease Yes, yeah. wherever it's yeah. just a you know
1: words to live by
0: feels like a really good uh place to finish so the book's called shortage you want to just tell people where they can find you where they can uh connect with you and yeah. all that kind of thing?
1: so on twitter and instagram and pretty much everything else i'm Ask Pang, askpang a-s-k-p-a-n-g um, Twitter is more work stuff. Instagram is more pictures of my dogs, and, you know, <laughs> or of uh, you know coffee cups. But you know, both have their both have their place. And then my company is called Strategy and Rest, and the URL for that is strategy.rest. Rest is now a top level domain, mm. which I think says something. Maybe maybe says something positive about or of you know about the future of work.
0: Yeah. So. Interesting. Well, it's been great having you here. Enjoy London. Oh, always. Thanks for being on Beyond Busy.
1: Uh, Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: So So thanks again to Alex for being on the show. And also thanks to Leo and Matt from Penguin for helping me to sort that one out. Um, I want to say two more things before we go. Obviously, thanks to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show as well. And the final thing I just want to say really quickly is just in relation to Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and everything that's been happening over the last week or so, obviously it's been a really, you know, just a really traumatic time and not the first time, right? So this is just one of those things that it's shocking and it's also just not surprising, um we had quite a few conversations internally within the team about different things that we could do challenging our own biases lots of stuff which i think is really positive and it sort of echoed what i put on instagram last tuesday which was like this blackout tuesday thing and i put the tile up my black tile and then i just felt really uneasy about it and i wrote underneath our job is not let's remember that our job is not to put up a black tile for today but it's to spend a lifetime questioning our own biases, challenging prejudice, and seeking equality for every single human being. And I feel like I have a good awareness of race, and I've you know I have a mixed race son. Like I care quite deeply about the kind of world that he is going to inhabit and how much prejudice he might face. Uh, and obviously saw some of that. Um, when I was with his mum. But you know, when I looked through the back catalogue of Beyond Busy episodes, I was really surprised at how few black faces there were. And I think I'm pretty, you know, conscious and aware and um, very um, forward-thinking around diversity. I think if you look at, you know, 10, 12 episodes of Beyond Busy there's probably five or six men and and five or six women. You know, I'm pretty good on gender diversity. I thought I was pretty good too on um, racial diversity. And actually when I looked at it, blimey, it was very white. So I just want to say at the end here, um, this is just a little plea, um, just a kind of recognition that um, I haven't done enough on that. And um, just a plea that if you know of, interesting voices that you think i should elevate on this platform um particularly black voices then please let me know because i really want to do more and i want to do better and um get some of those things out there so uh yeah i'm going to talk to a couple of people over the next week or so about this as well but just if you have anyone in mind who you think has really interesting thoughts to share around um all our usual core themes you know success and productivity and well-life balance and all that stuff um, then please do let me know Um so i'm really just looking to uh, do as much as i can to use this platform and and uh, give this platform over to as many black and asian and other minority ethnic voices as, as i possibly can so um yeah you can email me graham at thinkproductive.co.uk love to take your recommendations that way And uh, likewise, if you just go to grahamalcott.com, there's a contact form on there. You can just um, uh, drop me a little line that way if that is easier. Um, But yeah, I want to do more. And I feel like, you know, let's all figure out actions that we can take and let's all spend some time, you know, reading and thinking and challenging some of these more systemic biases. Like it's not enough to just say, I'm going to call out racism if I see it. It's you know racism is part of it, but actually the whole infrastructure um is biased, and the whole infrastructure needs to change and uh yeah, that takes time, and it the first step of that is is the awareness, so you know there's loads of reading lists doing the round. I'm not gonna recommend particular books, but there's loads of reading lists um you know doing the rounds about particular books that you can um read on this subject. There's some great stuff on netflix there's there's various other things to. Uh, take into account here. But like, let's do the work. Let's, let's do some of that work and um, have some more of those conversations as uneasy and as, as uncomfortable as they can sometimes be. And, and, you know, it's like, I, I often, you know, I often talk about how I'm a feminist and sometimes people find that odd. Why is a man a feminist? It's like, well, if anything, it should be more on men to solve issues of gender bias because we're the privileged ones right like we've got more of that um you know perspective of privilege to be able to break it down and so the same is true uh when it comes to race and i've always thought about myself as being an anti-racist um but i do think that needs to be a proactive stance and not just a badge or a label that we call ourselves so anyway that's um that's what i'm going to say on that there's there's a lot more been said and i think the the key thing over the next few weeks and months is uh to figure out what we can do and one of the things i can do is use this platform to to elevate more black voices so i'm going to do that uh my phone's going um which uh means i need to sign off so uh i'm gonna head uh from here but we're back in two weeks time with another episode so until then